WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Mitch Daniels passes on a Senate run. A partisan school board's debate revived, plus challenges ahead for a public health bill and more. From the television studios at WFYI, it's Indiana Week in Review for the week ending February 3rd, 2023. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, former Governor and Purdue President Mitch Daniels announced in a statement he will not run for Indiana's open U.S. Senate seat in 2024. The Senate seat opened up when incumbent Mike Braun announced he would run for governor instead in 2024. Rumors had circled Daniels for weeks, and the former Purdue University president recently traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with Senate Republican leaders. But Daniels says a term in the Senate is not the life he wants to live. He says, I have never imagined that I would be well-suited to legislative office, particularly where seniority remains a significant factor in one's effectiveness, and I saw nothing in my recent explorations that altered that view. The only Republican who's officially announced a Senate bid is 3rd District Congressman Jim Banks. Are you surprised by Daniel's decision? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwanis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, editor-in-chief of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, are you surprised that Daniel's took a pass? No, not really. I mean, he's, he's 72. He's had a long and distinguished career. He might want to do something more meaningful than being part of that ridiculous Republican Senate caucus in Washington. I mean, if he wanted to, if he thought, I assume that if he thought he had a chance to do something and do something positive for the country, he might have sought it out. But you don't with that caucus. And on top of that, he'd have to get down in the mud with Jim Banks and his allies where they spread lies about all kinds of things for a very nasty campaign. And the outcome would be uncertain because the Republican, the Republican primary voters are picking crazy people to represent them, plain and simple. And moderate Republicans, which category I think Mitch Daniels would at least have one foot in, are not, are not acceptable candidates. And so he's, from, a, from a personal perspective, it's a good decision for him, I think. He didn't mention this in his fairly lengthy explanation for why he, he decided not to run, but do you think the fact that, he, I agree with Ann, I don't think he was a shoe in if he decided to get in. I think he had a very good chance at it, uh, at the nomination at least, but do you think that played a role in this decision, that he wouldn't have had an easy time in the primary? Yeah, I think the context that was being created on why he would run and what that would look like was to re- reset the, either reset the party or at least point it in a different direction. Um, that, that is more reflective of, you know, his time in office and, you know, the, the people he worked for, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush. The reality is... Richard Luger, too. Richard right? Luger, of course, yeah. Um, I mean, the reality is there's not a go-back scenario. So the so what he had to figure out, and if anyone could have done it, it's him, it's what do you want the party to look like in the future with the sum of these two now kind of generations of experience with, fair, you know, moderation in the Republican Party and now populism in the Republican Party. Um what do you do with that and what's next if you don't like the direction it's going now and you don't want it to continue? 
Um, if anyone could figure that out, it was him. I think the challenge in this race, the club for growth clearly demonstrated that they weren't going to hold back on um, you know, recasting, rewriting his legacy as governor and some of the really important in-context decisions he had to make that would not be popular necessarily today. Um, but I think banks could have done um, a, a really effective job of saying, hey, me too, I came up during Daniels too. You know, I, he and I are the same, Jim Banks and I are the same age, we've known each other a long time, and I think he could have done a really effective job. Let, let the Club for Growth go over there and do their thing. I'm going to say, look, I love Mitch Daniels too, but it's time to turn the page. And I think that would have been a really effective message in that campaign. I but not one they probably would have used. I want to. I think, I think that is, I, if they were, I think that's, I think that was the best way forward. Right. You get the, I the best of both. I want to talk about the Senate race now. Uh, first, uh, news dropped today that Victoria Sparks announced she will not run not only for U.S. Senate in 2024, she's not running for anything. She's leaving Congress after her current term. We'll talk more about that next week. But the U.S. Senate race, is anyone going to run other than Jim Banks? Has he cleared the field? Well, that, to me, you were asking these folks the surprise. Were they, were they surprised that Mitch Daniels was getting out? And that didn't surprise me as much as the fact that no one else has jumped in. You would think typically when you have a U.S. open U.S. Senate seat, and even though it's popular these days to disparage that office and say, oh, it's a horrible thing and it's, it's filled with crazies or it's boring or it's a lack of executive ability to affect change, I don't care. There's still, it's a very coveted job for lots and lots and lots of people who aspire to that and have for years. So to, the fact that there's only one person Jim Banks, who seems to be uh, only the, the only one who wants it, clearly, uh, at this point, or at least the one who has articulated that desire. Now, I will say, is this when I can get my plug in for, for Indiana lawmakers, yeah. which is, airs on many of these same public television and radio stations. We did have uh, Eric Holcomb, the governor, on this week. Great discussion. And I pressed him several times uh, because he certainly would appeal to the same wing of the party that Mitch Daniels would have. I mean, he is another like Mike, he's another protege, another uh, person who benefited from the mentorship of Mitch Daniels. And he twice refused to rule out a run. Now, am I surprised? No, of course. The, I mean, I could have scripted what he's going to say. Yeah. I have two more years as governor. I want to come out of the fourth turn strong. I'm, not, I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Fourth turn, that's on brand. I know, that's <laughs> on brand. But the point is, uh, he didn't rule it out, and he yeah. could have. To that end, I don't know that there's a shortage of people who want to be the next U.S. Senator from Indiana, but it doesn't seem to matter now. Jim Banks seems to have this thing locked up in terms of money and uh, endorsements and all that. Yes, obviously, former President Donald Trump came out this week and endorsed him. He's got the you know Republican Senatorial Committee behind him. He seems to have, you know, you got to give him credit for the strategy of that. And just to note on your point, I wrote a column today and we look back, not since direct primary started in 1976 has there been an open, uncontested Republican primary seat. Like, it's never happened. I mean, Whenever there's the an Senate. open seat, there's always a contested Republican race. And there's still race. time. I'm guessing there, is. there is, but who's going to have the money? The NRC shut the door on this. You could yeah. have somebody. Organizationally, I mean, someone someone else may run, but like, like no one, I don't think anyone's serious because, yeah. one, you understand what it means for Mitch McConnell to now be behind Jim Banks. And organizationally, if you're not a top-tier candidate, organizationally, it's really hard to run for statewide office. It's hard to even get on the ballot for statewide office. You'd That's need, true. You'd need a 
ton of money on oh, yeah. just on well, your own. But there are people who could sell sure. finance. Well, I, yeah. it. I mean, he's got the grassroots. He was state chair in addition yeah, to Yeah, but with, with, with the, with I the know Senate about apparatus the, the, behind the, the, him, I'm not sure. If well, I grant you that. Well, but I, it's, I think uh, the Senate apparatus means money, period. I don't think it, yeah. and I'm not even yeah, sure the I mean, endorsement of Donald Trump is going to carry that McConnell's, much weight outside of the primary. There is precedent for that, them backing away when another legitimate candidate, not in Indiana, but comes into the race, they'll say, oh, we didn't realize. I have no idea who that would be. I don't know who it would be, but I'm saying there is precedent for the the Republican Senate campaign committee to to reconsider. All right, well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question. And this week's question is, will Jim Banks be Indiana's next U.S. Senator? A, yes, or B, no? Last week, we asked you whether Indiana should change its constitution to allow more people to be held without bail. 27% of you say yes, 73% say no. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Local school board candidates would be forced to declare a political party on the ballot under legislation that got a hearing but not a vote in a Senate committee this week. While most of the people who testified opposed the bill, a small handful said it's needed. Sarah Sampson is a Republican who lost her school board election last fall. She says requiring partisan labels promotes transparency. And just because I, as a candidate, would say who I am would bring politics into the school is actually another, what I would say, scare tactic. Bob Savage has been an elected school board member for nearly four decades. He says forcing partisan labels wouldn't create transparency. He says it would be a cloak of invisibility. By boiling down a person's life experiences, the role within their community to a single label of a political party, party, a wall is built like walls are built by most labels and leads the voter to to or away from a candidate for reasons that are not important to the community. It's unclear whether the Senate bill will get a vote in committee this session. Michael Bryan, straight up, should school board races be partisan? I don't think they should, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, one, I think it, it, it brings this presumption of, you know, the whole point, right? It brings the, it, it does bring this presumption of what your position might be on, on K-12 issues. And it may not, that may not be the case. Ann likes to paint a broad brush that, all Republicans want the elimination of public school for private school and vouchers and school choice. Not in the Indiana Senate, they don't, <laughs> right? And so that, that is that is a controversial. It is always hard to ex, you know expand that. And if you're running for you know school board for your you know K twelve public school, then you know you may have a different. You're clearly invested in that, right? So um, I think I think when people run for school board, I think I think they're coming to the table for things that have nothing to do with the rest of whatever that party label. Suggests, you know, uh, Senator Republican Senator Greg Walker from Columbus, who sat on that Senate committee, made similar that that similar point. He he was asking one of the people in favor of this bill. He said, "I'm a Republican, but I just voted for the amendment that they'd heard to gut that part of the bill." He said, "So you wouldn't have expected that by my party label?" He said, "I was reading." He said, "I had my staff print out for me from the 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 party platforms, the Democrat and Indiana Indiana Democratic and Republican Party platforms, any section about education." He said, "I didn't have them tell me." which they were. And he said, I found myself agreeing with the Democratic Party platform. So I don't know Good if man. Yeah, I don't know if he's thinking about changing parties, but <laughs> when it comes to education, how much can partisan labels really tell you? It, it, what they'll tell you is that this is an attempt to, you know, usually school boards deal with who the superintendent is and broad discussions of curriculum and get, are the buses running on contracts time? And and contracts and all of those kinds of mundane things that make public education run. 
And that's what they're supposed to do. This is an attempt to put the cultural wars in K through 12 education. That's what this is. It's clearly an attempt to inject partisanship. It's not just so you know what they think. It's so that you can, you can endorse, which some Republican organizations have done for school board already. And it, it's an attempt to put those cultural wars right in K through 12 education. And it's a really bad idea. I mean, this was brought up a little bit, Nikki, but looking at last year's election results, um, it, nothing in state law prevents a candidate from saying, hey, I'm a Republican. I mean, we saw, especially in the donut counties around Indianapolis, a lot of partisanship in these school board races. It was yeah. a mixed bag of success. So what's, yeah, and, you know. and they're free to, and we saw this this year, you know, if they want to put Republican or Democrat on their campaign signs and all their campaign literature, have at it, you right. know. Um, and, and the supporters, it seems, it seems that most of these school boards are functioning just fine. There are a few, there have been some issues there. We want to ban books and we're worried about critical race theory and, and things like that. And it seems like there were a few, uh, you know, smaller, you know, races that people felt like they should have won or people didn't listen to them. And so they're sort of acting out. But I would definitely call that you know, a minority of opinion. It's hard to get a sense of um, whether or not this bill will pass. It doesn't seem like it's going to pass this session. But is this one of those issues that it keeps coming back until it finally has its day? Or until the uh, pendulum swings the other direction ever so slightly. I don't know. I don't think it has enough traction right now for any number of reasons. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You pose the question that does having an R or D behind your name suggest what your views are on issues. But one of the more interesting, some people would say offensive, maybe I would too, uh, that was a comment in that regard was last year when a member of the General Assembly said that, all, uh, I hope he had, it was a uh, misstatement, but say it also suggested the morals of the, uh, the candidate by whether it was an R or a D, which is offensive, I think, to a, a lot of people, too. Uh, it's one thing to say that... It wasn't just an individual. I believe it was the author of the bill. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. It's one thing there's an inference you can draw about, you know, tax policy or fiscal stance and, or platform issues, and maybe you can't even do that based on what we just heard from Senator Wonker. But to suggest that one is superior has a superior moral compass, also, I think, is, is troubling. It also disqualifies large groups of people. You know, it was suggested during the hearing that, okay, well, now if you work for the federal government, you can't run. Right. It's like, all right, well, that's a lot of people. If you work for, if you work in the state for uh, the judiciary branch at all, at any level, right. you, or, can't run. you can't run yeah, we also because have, you, you can't run for a partisan We also office. have straight ticket voting. It's worth remembering. So, we, so pretend you're a concerned parent, you want to run for school board, but you don't have a primary voting record. Okay, now the county chairman can ding you. Now you can't run. Um, and so he's go, oh, I'll, I'll run as an independent. Well, good luck because... Every Get county in this state voting. is pretty extremely partisan one way or the other, yeah. um, and you're buried under that straight ticket Maybe vote. Maybe instead of partisan elections, they should be looking at straight, st straight ticket voting. Hey, There's Mike, a Mike Delf led the charge for that as a Republican in the Senate yeah. and unfortunately never got anywhere. Depends on where you live, whether it's a good idea or not. That's yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Senate lawmakers took their first steps Wednesday, aimed at dramatically improving Indiana's public health system, but a committee hearing also revealed the challenges that lay ahead. The legislation contains a list of about two dozen core services local health departments must provide if they want to get significantly increased funding from the state. That includes everything from food protection and local pool inspections to immunizations and maternal and child health services. Local government organizations, health care groups, and representatives from the business community all support the bill. 
Knox County Commissioner Kelly Streeter says providing quality public health care affects so much more, education, public safety, and economic development. Many site selectors ask, what is your infectious disease rate? What is your fetal infant mortality rate? It is real. They want to build in my community, but they want to know we're healthy and we have services. But some county leaders, like St. Joseph County Councilor Amy Drake, fear state takeover of local public health, even if the bill and the funding tied to it are optional. If I tell my constituents I don't want to take um, a, a big chunk of money, they're going to say, why don't you care about our, us? Why don't you care about our public health? And our issue is we don't want to opt into that and then have such, so many strings that we're not allowed to make the decisions that we want for our people. Much of the opposition was from people peddling COVID-19 lies and misinformation. The committee unanimously approved the bill, though some senators expressed hesitance and advocated for greater guardrails to ensure local control. Nikki, does this public health makeover face a rocky road? I think it still has a lot of support, but that was a great example of, you know, there are a lot of people still really mad about COVID and they're, you know, they're really making this bill about that. And I think it's at least fair to have the discussion of, you know, some people say, well, if we take the money, then we have to follow your strings. And they're not like difficult strings, they're standard of care issues and things like that. But I do think it's a fair conversation to have of, why doesn't the state fund this anyway? Like, why are there strings? Shouldn't they be funding public health infrastructure in the state anyway? You know, so I think that's a fair part of the discussion. You know, it, it, Nikki just pointed out, there is still a lot of anger at the state house anyway over COVID, the pandemic, and its handling by the state leadership. And is this, t is this bill going to be an important test to finding out whether it's a relatively small number of very loud people or a significant political influence in the state? It may be a certain type of test. Uh, did I mention the governor was on Lawmakers this I week? And I did that. point out to him when I asked him about this very issue, I, I suggested he was a victim of long-haul COVID. Not in any, not in any physical, physical sense, political sense, but the, he still feels the ill effects of what was perceived as his overreach uh, by some uh, and the administration's overreach during COVID. And he, he readily acknowledges the question was, and this strikes me as very ironic, that after you have this unprecedented threat to our public health and well-being, where a lot of Hoosiers, because of our diabetes rate, because of our obesity, because of our propensity to smoke, we're worse off than a lot of our fellow Americans in terms of dealing with COVID. You would think in the wake of that, this is the time for if not unanimous, certainly widespread support for this kind of overhaul. But he acknowledged that it actually makes it tougher. Yeah. That if this, this issue had come up, this sort of reform and funding increase before COVID, it probably would have stood a better chance. No, it wouldn't. They wouldn't have spent the money. I, I want to ask, that's, that's an interesting point too, but I, I want to ask about you know, its, its chances in the long term. This was a unanimous committee right. uh, vote, but almost to a person. There were like, I think, three votes that were just yes uncategorical yes. Every other one was, yes, but I'm worried about this piece of the bill. Yes, but I'm worried about that piece of bill. Or yes, I'm worried about state takeover of, of public health. Is that, is that more than anything else telling us the road it faces in these Republican caucus rooms? Maybe. I think this is still a really fringe position. Um, and you look back, what are you so upset about? <laughs> that was during COVID. You're still like, alive. Like in, in early in COVID, we had no clue what we were, do, what we were dealing with. No idea. Right. And I understand that if this ever happens again, we do need to look at how we handled, and 
I wish we would have done this anyway, but we won't because we don't really, we're not really interested in accountability in the federal, you know, federal government on what worked and what didn't and where did we waste money and where, where didn't we. But, you know, the decisions we made, closing down small businesses, leaving big businesses open, I get all that. That was so fast and such a small window in terms of the overall, you know, health emergency that was mostly directing federal, federal money that came into the state. And you were pretty much free almost very quickly, um, as quickly as Florida, uh, to do to get back to normal in, in Indiana, but we just but because Eric Holcomb is the guy he is, he's he's not Ron DeSantis. He's not going to go pound the federal government for you know COVID decision making. He's paying the political price for it, even though the experience if you're living in Indiana or living in Florida are nearly identical. We should. What, what, what are the odds of this bill passing? Oh, I think the odds are pretty good. Um, we need it. We absolutely need it. And, you know, you're right. We didn't know what we were facing with COVID. We saw the pictures in New York of people on stretchers and body, you know, body refrigerated. Yeah. Uh, there was no place to put the bodies. That was pretty frightening. And, you know, <laughs> Eric Holcomb did not create COVID, okay? We were stuck with it. I don't we know, Ann. To- <laughs> I sat through that committee hearing. <laughs> we were stuck with it, and we had to react quickly. Hopefully this next time we'll be more prepared. We'll have the gear that we need to have, and we'll, we'll have immediate uh, uh, research on vaccines. And it wouldn't be as prolonged and pronounced as it's been. But to blame him for this is ridiculous because more people just are alive because of this. Keep in mind, too, just let, this isn't just about masks and vaccinations, inoculations. This is about EMS services. This is about the, the, your proximity if you're in an automobile crash and you're seriously injured to a level one trauma center. Very tiny fraction, theoretically, is about this kind of controversial issue. There's really not much controversy when you're in an auto crash and you need to get to Which is why it's a few people who are just mad. But some people can't get past that aspect of this. It's worth remembering the local departments of health weren't all that popular before COVID. Right. <laughs> and there's right. a lot of deference in the bill, I think, to those yeah. local departments of health anyway. Well, and maybe like, even more important than that, if you read the bill, and I know that people struggle to do that, but if you read the bill, there's a lot of, it, it's not the local health department making it's the local elected officials who have to vote to take the money, who have to vote on some of the, how they're going to run these programs. Yeah, that, that's, so that's important, too, in terms of this idea of local control, yeah, that you're the, accountable to the people in a way that theoretically an appointed person is not. Local yeah, but the appointed were, person is the one with the expertise. Well, yeah. but they that's were, the they, that's they were emasculated last year when they lost their right. authority that's to true. make public emergency decisions and ceded that, or in that, they didn't cede it, but it, the decision-making authority away, went yeah. to uh, elected officials. All right, applications to a federal program that provides financial assistance to families are rarely approved in Indiana, even as the number of Hoosier families in deep poverty grows. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Adam Yehea Reyes reports state senators passed a bill to bolster the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, program this week. Currently, a family of three has to have a net monthly income below $300 to qualify for TANF. Republican Senator John Ford's bill would increase the program's maximum income threshold after two years to a level he says might still require that family of three to make less than $1,000 to qualify. What doesn't change in this bill is TANF is a temporary program. You must have 20 days of job search before the program is approved. There's a 24 lifetime membership for adults and 60 months for children. 
The bill would also increase some payments families can get from TANF. It passed almost unanimously and now heads to the House. This version of the bill only increases the maximum income limit, meaning the state agency responsible for administrating TANF can still set a limit below that when deciding whether to accept families' applications. John Schwannis, I asked this question sort of about the, the Parsons School Board's bill, but this one has been uh, a while coming, too. Has um, this relatively modest TANF increase finally found its time? Probably, it's probably 30 years or overdue because this hasn't changed for a long time, and everything else has gone up. I mean, can you imagine? I haven't, I'm sure there is somebody who's plotted a graph or a chart that shows two lines, the, the cost of living thanks to inflation and what these payouts would be. You'd see a pretty huge gap. And somehow, as a society, we, we, we think that the two things that shouldn't go up are taxes and, and any kind of governmental spending with the acknowledgement that everything else is going to go up. We raise, for instance, the threshold at which you can qualify to get vouchers to send your kids to private school and so forth, but we better keep this the same. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a desperate need by people who, who are in this threshold. They need help, and, and it seems to me that... Uh, I, I don't it's know how you slice it. Politics, schmolitics, they need help. And, and on this one, I think it's important to note, the Senate has not necessarily been the roadblock here. Yeah, it's always been stopped <laughs> in the House before, but we have a new ways of means chairman. So how Jeff Thompson, you know, greets the bill will be interesting. And also a note that obviously these maximums need to go up, but it doesn't change the minimum. That's still a state administration choice. They, you know, they could increase the minimum they're getting now without that bill. And also, we're leaving like $50 million on the table every year just sitting in an account, yeah. not helping people. Is that the thing that helps get this across the line? Is it's not so. going to cost the state anything. It's money we're already getting from the federal and government. Have, it's going unspent. And we have people in such deep poverty that they can barely put enough food on the table to eat. So, yes, it ought to be, especially when we, we talk about the vouchers, especially when we expand the benefits for people who don't need them. And there are work search requirements. Shouldn't this be an easy sell to anybody? It should be modernized. The feds need to take the lead and modernize it. This is a bipartisan program in the 90s with Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. And, um, but now, and it had those work requirements, right? It was like, it was trying to, it was the new welfare, right? right? It was trying to get you out of welfare. And what we haven't paired it with, like, modern strategies to train people out of no. that being in, in so deeply in poverty. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. You can find Indiana Week in Review's podcast and episodes at wfyi.org slash iwir or on the PBS video app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.